listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome back to Belaboured Trumplandia Edition, episode 127. Today, we bring you a look at May Day strikes and actions around the country, coast to coast, as immigrant workers and allies withheld their labor in protest of the Trump administration and bosses' complicity with it. But first, the news. Well, it is a day that ends in Y, and so the Republican Party is trying to take away your health care, your rights, or to redistribute wealth upwards to the already obscenely rich. This week, they managed to do all three at once, as well as, well, do some of those individually separately, by actually managing to pass, by one measly vote, the bill that we should all be calling Trump Care Forever. The Republicans' replacement for the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, wasn't even released in full before they voted on it, hadn't been scored by the Congressional Budget Office, would massively increase deductibles, reintroduce the devastating pre-existing condition discrimination, would make employer-provided health care worse, slash Medicaid, and would actually save Social Security money by ensuring that more people would die before they were old enough to collect. Oh, and let's not forget the giant tax cut for the rich baked into it. While the bill is so far expected to have trouble passing the Senate, even Lindsey Graham, South Carolina Republican, was making noises about how irresponsible it was to pass something that hadn't even been scored yet, the House GOP was already pulling out for its beer party. Yes, crates of Bud Light were on their way to the House floor, and buses were waiting to bring the GOP reps to the White House to party with Trump or something. Jason Chaffetz, Utah Republican, fresh from surgery on a 12-year-old, yes, that's pre-existing, injury, scooted himself into the House to vote to make sure his constituents don't have the same rights as he does. Yes, they voted to ensure that Congress would not have to face the same rules as the rest of the country. So I guess we know what that means. The only way to ensure that you have good health care in this country is to run for Congress, y'all. We will have more on this subject next episode. The shadowy colonial outposts of America's military empire are far from the mainstream U.S. economy, but the workers there are still, at least in theory, covered by federal legal protections. But a group of subcontracted Chinese construction laborers have been protesting about being denied their basic rights at work while building at the site of a big island casino development. The Chinese workers claim that they are paid below the minimum wage for the territory. That's about six fifty-five an hour. Yes, that is lower than the minimum wage for the rest of America. And they've already gone for about a month and a half, reportedly without being paid at all, after having been promised $44 per day plus overtime. And like many other short-term migrant contract laborers around the world, They were reportedly forced to pay hundreds of dollars in recruitment fees to their shadowy labor broker, despite having arrived in the territories under the dodgy provision of tourists rather than as employees. Their parent company, Imperial Pacific, for its part has distanced itself from the apparent labor violations which were exposed by local media. They stated that they publicly denounce in the strongest terms the harboring and use of illegal workers by some of its contractors and subcontractors, and the utter disregard of the rights and well-being of these affected individuals. In doing so, of course, the corporation, like many other companies that profit off of subcontracted low-wage construction workers have tried to deny any liability for the treatment of these laborers. 
However, since they're ultimately responsible for awarding those contracts and overseeing them, it's hard to see how they don't share at least some culpability for their mistreatment. Anyway, the punting back and forth of responsibility for the day-to-day working conditions often leave workers like this exposed to exploitation. And in the case of the Chinese workers, some reported injuries that were never properly treated, substandard housing conditions, and the workers described the labor conditions as worse than what they experienced in China. How sad that in this small branch of the richest nation in the world stationed in the Pacific, we end up setting lower workplace standards than those countries that we frequently condemn for their substandard labor conditions. Lately, some relief has reportedly been promised to the workers in the form of so-called humanitarian aid, offering some temporary food and shelter provisions for the distressed laborers. But they don't want aid, they say. They want respect for the jobs that they've done. As one worker told the local press, quote, we can only call it humanitarian aid if they pay us. See, what they want in return for a hard day's work is simply fair treatment and dignity, things that the casino company was apparently willing to gamble away to turn a quick profit. Last weekend before May Day, hundreds of thousands of people took the street across the country for yet another march, the People's Climate March. While the labor movement and the climate justice movement have not always seen eye to eye, these days at least some unions are realizing the urgency of the climate fight, and the climate movement is recognizing the necessity of centering affected people rather than polar bears, not to mention beginning to center a critique of capitalism. So when 200,000 people marched in Washington, D.C. and countless thousands more around the country in sister marches, I was in Poughkeepsie, New York, where hundreds joined in. Unions were indeed part of the fight. Several unions sent contingents to the march, and members of SEIU 32BJ and New York State Nurses Association spoke as part of a pre-march frontline communities press conference. The steering committee for the big march included 32BJ, 1199 SEIU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, AFGE, the American Federation of Teachers, the American Postal Workers Union, the Communications Workers of America, SEIU, and the Labor Network for Sustainability, among others. We still have, of course, a ways to go before the two movements really understand their demands as connected, but there has been progress in recent years, even though the election of Trump has seen some of the fault lines spring back up, as Trump, of course, promises jobs at the expense of environmental regulations, or workplace safety regulations, or union protections, or prevailing wage laws. Were you at the march with your union? Let us know. Email us at belabored at org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. May 2nd was almost a day without a late-night joke, but a last-minute deal averted a threatened strike by the Writers Guild in heated contract talks for its screenwriters for television and film. The core of the dispute was how the value of writers' labor should be counted in an age of digital media. Though the strike was luckily averted this time, the last strike a few years ago cost the industry a lot of money and led to delays in production. Now this time, they managed to broker a deal that seems to have been received well by members. According to The Hollywood Reporter, they scored a few gains, including basic wage increases, uh, extra funding from the companies for their health care benefits, 
and more importantly, changes to the pay scales by which writers are compensated for seasons of varying lengths that match the new industry standards. This upgrade reflects the way people are consuming media these days as TV series have become shorter, more digitally based than traditional series and moved away from the network model. So seasons are often, say, 12 weeks instead of the conventional 16. And the new contract to go up for a vote soon before union members is also said to limit the terms under which a company can, quote, hold a writer idle, uh, meaning forcing them to go without work under exclusivity provisions in their contracts. The new contract would strengthen limits on idling writers for those at different income scales. The writers would also get additional residuals for video-on-demand services like Hulu, providing a much-needed boost for screenwriters' incomes now that consumers are getting more of their TV series through streaming rather than traditional networks. And they also got eight weeks' parental leave. Overall, Guild members expressed satisfaction, and the total compensation is said to be an increase of about $130 million over the lifetime of the contract for the Guild's 9,000 members. It's not a bad value for the industry as a whole, considering that averting a strike this time around saved Hollywood about $200 million. In other words, it pays for both sides to negotiate. And for some insight on how the May 1st strikes and mobilizations went, we did a roundup of different labor leaders across the country who have been taking action in their own communities. And here's Maria Elena Durazo, the General Vice President for Immigration, Civil Rights, and Diversity at Unite Here. For May Day, do you have a sense that just as May Day is sort of capping the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, How are you feeling in terms of the way this mobilization is playing out as a response to Trump and maybe um, moving beyond Trump, especially in terms of the workers that you are helping to organize? One of our key focuses was in the high tech in the Silicon Valley. And I would say look look at what the opportunity for May Day was to push the conversation with employers. Um, you know, we're not so focused on May Day that it's the end all of everything. Um, May Day is an opportunity uh, to not only push back on Trump, but also raise the expectation that employers should be supporting their immigrant workforce. And so we took the opportunity of May Day to push that conversation with employers in our industry. So, for example, we prepared what we believe we call our American, um, the hospitality principles and actions. And so we distributed, our president sent this out, what we think the issues are for our industry and why we think employers should be supportive of the workers in this industry. Um, And so we took those and on different levels, from a letter from our president to employers in our industry. We pushed it in the high-tech industry with you know, Facebook and Google and the others. Uh, we're pushing it in, in, in workplace after workplace and having that conversation for the first time ever with employers. And as an example said, we think you ought to let your employees 
take the day off if they want to go to the May Day action. Sort of like as an initial, you know, this is what you can do besides a number of other things that you can do. And the and the responses, you know, mixed across the board. I mean, we've never asked, you know, there in collective bargaining you have a no strike, no stoppage, you know, clause. And so it really is about pushing the employers to support their immigrant workforce. This is one way of doing it. And it we're not going to stop on May 2nd. We're going to keep on pushing forward. We expect employers and the industry as a whole to be much more proactive in on the issues of immigration in this country. They should not allow President Trump to demonize and and call all immigrants criminals and rapists. Uh, that's just unacceptable. We want our employers to stand side by side and defend and speak out in their defense. Do you feel like this is a particularly crucial time to be thinking about ways of protecting workers that go beyond policy itself, particularly on immigration, because, I mean, we're, we're, uh, you know, immigrants are facing, you know, incredible hostility at all levels of government. So do you see the workplace as a place where you can really solidify rights? Oh, absolutely. We have, um, for example, for our unionized locations, we have model uh, union contract language in many, many of our locals across the country. We have some version of this model language. We've also put into this um, examples of things we have not yet uh, in, you know, won into our contracts. For example, not all of our workplaces have language that requires a judicial warrant, but many of our places do have that language already. We want, for example, uh, uh, employers to, um, if they don't, to not do self-audits, you know, um, that that, you know, uh, and no re-verification and no self-audits, uh, only if they're, you know, required and and uh, by law to do it uh, with ICE. I mean, you know, there are employers who do self-audits. They don't have to do that. It's not required by law. So, so we have this model language that we are working towards getting the maximum possible rights in the workplace. And frankly, I think that, at least in principle, uh, most employers in this environment, most employers do agree that they want to provide protections from for their employees. Now, there's unscrupulous employers who, like, want it both ways. You know, they, they want to have a workforce of, of immigrants, but they don't want to stand up for them. In fact, they'll use the laws to fire them, you know, whenever it's convenient. Thinking of uh, ways that employers conveniently find ways to uh, enforce the law on their own when convenient... Um... You know, we certainly see that with efforts to unionize in the past, right? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, we, um, again, we have, when we put it into a union contract, they can't fudge around with it. Um, so we have, like, you know, they cannot use the re-verify unless it becomes federal law. 
Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that employers could do, and either they do it. We also prepared um, what we think um, in a non-union setting are policies that employers could adopt, um, you know, towards their employees. So, for example, I know the, the colleges and universities signed off, like, like several hundred of them signed off on how to create a sanctuary campus for their students. Um, we think they should apply the same considerations to all of their employees on their campuses, not just to the students. And so we prepared language in which um, they could do that and extend them to employees and um, and that's another way of doing it. So you don't have to have a union contract. You could adopt, you know, language that said this is going to be the policy of the university, just like they did for the the dreamer, um, you know, the dreamers that could be students on their campus. Yeah. Um, and is this just in workplaces that have not been able to form a union yet, or have not yet gotten exactly. to the vote point yeah. of voting? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's lots. There's lots of <laughs> lots of those. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that, you know, if the employer is willing to take that step, that could be one step towards building towards, you know, a kind of uh, workplace organization where you could get to a union vote. Yeah, well, even if they don't, you know, at this point, that's not our first goal. Our first goal is for employers to take a stand and defend the employees that make them successful. That's our goal. And that's what we're we're working on. There is a place in, in Emeryville in Northern California where some um, hotels that we represent uh, will be striking on May Day. There's a combination of not only uh, issues of immigration but also issues of the contract that expiring. So they're they're using that day to raise both the working conditions issues as well as you know immigration issues. So. You know, they'll be, it's very uneven, right? There'll be places that, you know, will be able to do that and then they're very, you know, um, prepared, very prepared to do that. There's other places that are going to do actions in the workplace. There's others that, you know, so there's different levels of where we need to get to um, eventually. And the, and the good And the good news is because of all the, for, uh, you know, um, a few months leading up to May Day, we were able to get successfully, right, Facebook and, and Google to do that without having to call it a strike. And, and you know, inconvenience the, the companies as much as the workers being, you know, you know, not knowing if there was going to be retaliation. That's the best situation. This is where companies should be. You know, they, they, they shouldn't be hiding or they shouldn't be afraid. Uh, the Trump is going to listen to businesses. He's going to listen to employers. Now he's going to feel the pressure of us taking to the streets, but um, you know he's going to listen to the interest of employers and businesses. And there's no reason to be shy right now. You're working with cafeteria workers, a lot of service workers, as you said, are either are. are um, non-unionized, many of them are contract workers and, you know, facing various levels of 
marginalization um, in terms of the employer-employment relationship. And so how do you see all those these different levels of organizing working together, um, especially, you know, on a day like May Day when workers of all different backgrounds are coming out? And, you know, the fast food workers and the Fight for 15 and all these things have been going on really kind of as, as more social movements, um, you know, rather than traditional labor union actions. So how do you see that piece fitting in with this industry? Well, sure. And and I don't see any any other result except to be much stronger in the end, because whether it's, you know, chain, uh, restaurant chains uh, being organized in, in a certain way together or fast food workers, it's all in the end has to add up to a lot more workers taking actions, um, organizing with each other so that they could win what's fair. And one of the things that, you know, these many of these sectors are going to, are working on is how employers should be fair to them, not only with wages and working conditions, but also should be fair to them and help them win, you know, a real immigration path to citizenship instead of a deportation policy um, and and how it is. So so I think they all work together, whether you're fast food, whether you're a restaurant chain, whether you're an airport food service worker that's represented by our union or a hotel um, uh, worker that's represented by our union. They all fit together. Um, I don't think there's, uh, I haven't heard, I don't know of any conflicts there, there are different methods of organizing. The most important thing is that now is not the time for workers to be shy. Now is not the time for employers to be shy. Now is the time to really push back um, much harder because too much is at stake. You know, just to give you an example, today we, we have in the labor movement, it's called Workers Memorial Day, where we acknowledge and raise the issue of health and safety on the job. Well, from one year to another, uh, from 14, 2014 to 2015, there was a growth in the number of deaths in the workplace, workplace-related deaths. And most of those, many of those, I'm trying to remember the exact number, were immigrants. So so, so much is at stake. If, if the president's budget is going to slash uh, you know, health and safety training, health and safety research, uh, you know, by the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, that's, we're all going to be worse off. We don't want any of our standards to, to drop on this, which is why we go back to, we have to look at this not like a one-day, you know, affair. This is our long-term commitment, um, and I'm proud that our union is way out there up front, you know, publicly, but also behind the scenes, you know, in the day-to-day work that, you know, uh, housekeepers and dishwashers and airport, you know, uh, workers, the ones that prepare the meals that you never see them, <laughs> you know, these these are all every day they're going through these through these struggles and battles and we rarely hear about them. So May Day is a good opportunity to see a sort of snapshot of it. But the real grind is every single day behind the scenes there. And, you know, we're going to do button up. We've got about 35,000 workers, members across the country in different venues that are going to be wearing their May 1st button 
you know, unity and solidarity. We're going to participate in the actions. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a great moment to feel this across the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons maybe there there has been such a, a focus on um, things like food chain worker organizing or, or, or organizing warehouses, for instance, or organizing uh-huh. retail workers is because um, I think the labor movement is starting to recognize that looking at um, the production chain as a whole is maybe a more effective way of going at, um, you know, workplace organizing in many ways because, you know, it's not as clear-cut who the boss is a lot of the time, right? You know, in our industry, I can only speak for our industry, there's always changes as to, you know, and having been a farm worker, I know that there was similar. So those are two industries I'm a little bit familiar with. Um, you know, there's always changes in the way that ownership and management um, um, handle you know, or the workforce. So, you know, in, in hotels, for example, private equity is far more in, engaged in investing than we have ever seen before. Who would ever think that that was the case? Um, you know, you have um, in some hotels that are owned by, you know, the chain, and then most of the hotels are not owned by the chain. Now they're just operators. It used to be that they were, they were the ones who made the final decision on everything, you know, short-term and long-term. Now it's some, you know, uh, some entity made up of investors that, you know, who know, we, you know, we we find out who they are, but um, certainly it isn't common knowledge by the workers who the owners are. So uh, we just have to deal with that. And subcontracting and independent contractors and all that, these are all just the same kind of tools that are used over and over by employers with a different name to try and keep workers from um, having the same protections. Um, so it is it is different today than 10 years ago, um, but it's the same dirty tactics of trying to keep workers from getting what they what they deserve. Now we talk to Will Lambeck, an organizer with Migrant Justice in Vermont. Our primary action will be locally focused, um, marching in Burlington uh, to the Ben and Jerry's scoop shop uh, in downtown Burlington. Um, but we expect that uh, other people will take action in solidarity with immigrant farm workers uh, targeting Ben and Jerry's stores and other locales. Um, we had a recent uh, day of action on April 4th, um, that saw actions in 10 cities uh, in addition to Burlington. Um, and we've had folks uh, reaching out to um, plan similar actions uh, for May Day as well. And and what is the status on the folks who are targeted by ICE? Um, are their cases still wending through the system? Or I, have they all been released by now? Or Yeah, so all, all the cases um, of... Migrant justice leaders uh, are are still uh, ongoing. Um, so the the four leaders and and really four people who have been responsible in many ways for developing the Milk with Dignity campaign: uh, Victor Diaz, Miguel Alcudia, Suri Palacios, and Kike Balcázar. They've all been released due to public campaigns. Um, another uh, migrant justice member, an immigrant farm worker. Uh, Alex Carrillo 
is still in detention. He was denied bail. Um, and there was actually uh, there was an action in Boston today led by the Kosecha movement um, uh, shutting down a, a, an ICE jail in downtown Boston and calling for his release. Did they have outstanding deportation orders previously that ICE is just acting on now? Or like what, what might explain the the reason they seem to be cracking down now? No, none of them had uh, outstanding deportation orders or previous contact with ICE. The arrests of uh, Victor and Miguel happened last year um, and, and were pretty widely reported on. Victor was arrested in April, Miguel in September, uh, and then Alex, Kike, and Suli were arrested in March of this year. And what it comes down to is, is simply political targeting by the ICE office seeking to retaliate against people who are exercising their First Amendment rights and people who are speaking up and uh, denouncing poor conditions in the dairy industry, denouncing the ways that the criminalization of immigrants leads to their exploitation. Um, and uh, ICE is trying to send a message to uh, immigrant dairy workers for them to keep their heads down. So in, in 2015, uh, the CEO signed an agreement in a public event um, committing to working with us to implement the Milk with Dignity program in the Ben & Jerry's dairy supply chain and committing the company to this model of worker-driven social responsibility um, based on a, a farm worker-authored code of conduct, farm worker education, a third-party monitor that serves as uh, the enforcement mechanism to make sure that farms are compliant, um, the company paying a premium to, to farms and farm workers uh, for their participation in the program, uh, and, and they committed that all of this would be uh, consecrated in a legally binding contract. But since then, um, the company has been uh, dragging their feet. Uh, and and hasn't yet uh, followed through on that commitment to sign the contract uh, to enter into that agreement with Migrant Justice. And and that's why we're out in the streets again. Do we know, um, have they responded to any of the recent calls, either on on sort of like, you know, to to either defend activists from, um, you know, from, from ICE's crackdown and or just about the Milk with Dignity program in general? Yeah, they, they have responded, and in their public statements, they, they say that they remain committed to the, the principles of the program, and following uh, our two-day picket of their board meeting on April 11th and 12th, they publicly announced a change in their sort of negotiating posture and, and have uh, assigned different people to um, negotiate on behalf of the company, and, and those are positive steps, but Farm workers aren't going to be uh, placated by promises anymore. We want uh, actions, not words. Do you feel like this is kind of folding into a broader kind of wave of, of campaigning? You know, May Day is obviously an important date for, for all workers, but, you know, food workers are becoming increasingly an issue and also just like something that really brings together a lot of different sectors. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Michael Justice, uh, we're members of the Food Chain Workers Alliance and uh, are really excited to see all of the actions being organized by uh, food chain workers around the country. And, and yeah, I mean, May Day is, is a historic day for 
uh, working people, particularly immigrant workers in the U.S. Um, who have oftentimes been at the forefront of the labor movement in our country's history. Given the focus on immigration under Trump, I mean, what I mean, are you hopeful at all with this administration or like where do you see the sort of potential for change lying, if not from the administration itself? Yeah, well, I mean, what's um, uh, important to understand, like resistance to uh, Trump is is already working. I mean, we've seen uh, his policies blocked, uh, his crackdown slowed down by massive popular resistance uh, to his agenda of mass deportation. Um, But uh, mass deportation isn't a partisan issue. It's not something that Trump invented. Uh, President Obama, of course, was the deporter-in-chief. He deported more immigrants in his eight-year tenure than all the presidents in the 20th century combined, more than two and a half million. Um, And so the the root causes of this issue go uh, much deeper than one president, any one administration, or any one political party, and require a much more systemic change. So popular resistance to Trump's policies is uh, incredibly important, and and we're going to see a flourishing of that on May Day. Uh, At the same time, farm workers and migrant justice um, have developed a strategy focusing on corporate supply chains um, and pressuring uh, corporate brands to take responsibility to stop human rights abuses in their supply chains. Uh, and in part, that's out of a recognition that states uh, have never adequately enforced labor laws and, and we shouldn't be relying only on uh, states or the federal government to protect workers' rights. And we've seen through the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and other organizations, the transformative power of targeting corporations. And um, uh, I think particularly uh, uh, with with the Trump administration, um, that's going to be a, a path forward for many workers' movements. Here's Celine Perez of Warehouse Workers Resource Center in California. Were there full-fledged strikes or were people mobilizing in different ways? And, um, you know, what was the experience of the workers? Right. So we actually participated in and were part of three different actions in Southern California, so Riverside uh, as well as Long Beach and Los Angeles. And, you know, in terms of workers taking action, they participated in different ways. So there were workers that did go on strike and others that participated, you know, after work or took the day off. And what we really saw in the different communities was that there was this unity, not just in terms of workers, but really looking at workers and um, themselves as community members as well, right? So it wasn't just worker issues or immigrant rights issues, but it was also looking at police accountability, indigenous rights. So it was definitely this unity of communities that have fell uh, under attack with this new administration and really how do we start working together, right, and how, how we're all being impacted. So so that was really great to see and that energy um, and that there is this focus not just on large cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, but also on smaller cities, right, in our case like Long Beach and Riverside, where you did see the community mobilize and stay in that area and not just participate in the Los Angeles action, feeling the need to have their voices heard on the local level as well um, as to, you know, protest not just the, the administration, but also what's going on in our local communities, right? 
Were the protests largely centered on um, workplace issues? Was it more of a labor mobilization, um, like, you know, with taking days off from work and whatnot? Um, or were they more responding to sort of the political crisis that they see? It was both issues, really. You know, what, what we've seen in our communities this is not the attacks on the workplace, but even in the workplace itself, right, there's been the issues addressed with immigrant rights because how that's impacting some of these workplaces and the fear, um, but also the police brutality with formerly incarcerated folks and feeling that their voices have been silenced, right, and, and these workplaces that they're being exploited, but also in our communities where they feel under attack. What about the workers, uh, the warehouse workers that you work with? What's their situation like? What are their working conditions like? And are there specific um, demands that they are making uh, on May Day? Right. So so warehouse workers, you know, we, we do have a, a big population of immigrant workers, but also a lot of uh, native-born workers that are uh, formerly incarcerated. So uh, a lot of the issues that we deal with are wage theft in terms of temp workers, or even directs where they're not getting all their hours paid, um, where, you know, checks have bounced, um, and also dealing with issues of health and safety in the workplace where, you know, the forklifts uh, don't work correctly and, and workers uh, have gotten ill because of the heat. But we've also been dealing with uh, how these jobs are, are not good jobs currently, right? There's no, there's no job security. You're not guaranteed your hours. You don't have any benefits. And if you do speak up in the workplace, um, you're told your assignment has ended at that location. So we saw this as an opportunity to really highlight, especially one of our campaigns, California Cartage, which is at the Port of L.A., where this employer is exploiting um, our community and some city of Los Angeles property and really drawing attention to that um, th- this employer is attacking immigrant workers, but also uh, the African-American workers in our community and how that's also hurting our community and really calling to action that, you know, we're, we're there to, to hold this um, employer accountable, right, and that, you know, he's following, profiting, off of our communities, and that needs to change. Um, and also that we have to stand united with the community members because um, they're also being impacted. Is the crackdown on immigrants directly affecting their workplace conditions? Do we see employers actively um, using immigration law to intimidate people or threatening people? Um, or is it more just like an overall atmosphere of feeling, um, uh, you know, pretty alienated by by ice and whatnot right so, so in california that that's always been an issue in terms of workers organizers being uh and the employers threatening um workers based on their immigrant status so that's always been an issue um what we do see that's different right now with this new president um is that that fear has escalated not just in the workplace but in the community where workers are scared even um, to go to the store or to take their children to school. So we just see that um, level being uh, raised, right? And um, and that fear in terms of the workplace just increased in, in um, not just with threats, but feeling that uh, the employer feeling that they could get away with it in the current atmosphere that we're in. Do you have a sense of whether um, there's been an increase in any kind of like workplace audits or anything like that? Um, in many communities, people are reporting that um, you know leading 
activists, whether it's community activists or local labor activists, are actively being targeted by ICE? No, right now we're seeing more uh, in terms of just uh, increasing policing in the communities around uh, residential areas, uh, schools, and um, also stores. So that's what we're seeing currently, not to say that is not going to increase in terms of the workplaces, but right now the focus has seemed to pertain more to the community residential areas. How does the community respond to that collectively? Are you doing like, you know, trainings or or, um, are you preparing people to take more forceful measures when it comes to protecting their, their neighbors and family? Yes, so we uh, are part of a rapid response network in our communities, uh, training folks to be part of that network. Also, uh, with workers specifically creating a plan what to happen, uh, what what to do just in case they are detained, uh, what are their rights uh, around that situation. Um, So definitely working on that, but also focusing on creating um, sanctuary city policies and also pushing SB 54 to make California a sanctuary state. There's been a lot of debate over to what extent cities can really be sanctuary cities and how protective local municipalities um, and and how proactive they've been about that. Um, Can you talk about some of the key points that that you're looking at, um, especially when it comes to, you know, um, it's one thing for the government to say we're not actively cooperating with ICE, but there are all sorts of other ways that um, the the conduct of local law enforcement can enable, um, you know, ICE and federal intervention. Right. So so there has been that conversation. um, And, you know, so we are, in terms of our community, doing education and how do we hold our local officials accountable. Some of these communities that we work in, that hasn't been done and the city council isn't actually reflective of our community. So, so that's something we're currently working on um, and strategizing, you know, does this mean in terms of making public action that next year when elections come around that um, we need to highlight the, the stances of these city officials and work with allies in terms of, of changing uh, these city councils to be more reflective of who's actually living in these cities. And so uh, when we're talking about the role of labor in this, mm-hmm. uh, what, what types of organizing have you guys been doing? Um, is it primarily sort of informal efforts or um, are you working actively with, with unions? Um, are, you, are you partnering with them to maybe move towards unionization? Um, and, um, you know, what about other things like just trying to get wage laws enforced? Like how, how is that? feeling these days, especially when everyone is feeling under siege just for, you know, basically being out of the house. Right, right, definitely. So we we do a combination of, you know, certain warehouses, uh, we just organize the workers and they're knowledgeable and defend their rights in the workplace, uh, establishing a model of workers standing up, similar to the union in the sense of having shop stewards. Uh, obviously, as a worker center, we can negotiate contracts with the employer, uh, but really uh, mobilizing workers to take ownership of the workplace uh, to enforce the laws that it currently exist um, and to, to fight to change the workplace around respect, right, and taking action. We have collaborated with unions, um, you know, if, you know, workers decide that that's the route they want to go with unionization, uh, we definitely um, help facilitate that. 
them to talk to these different unions. Um, so there is currently a fight that, you know, uh, where we do see that, which is the California Courage Warehouse, which I mentioned earlier, the part of L.A., where the, the workers have made the decision that they want to head that direction of unionization, which we fully support. Um, and so, so definitely each work site is different. Um, and our, our biggest thing is how do we educate and um, activate these workers to really stand up for what they believe in and take action in the workplace, regardless if they're looking towards unionization or not. When we're talking about um, sort of the 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 issue of of just basic employee rights, um, it is are these people working on as contractors? Um, are they are you know temporary workers? What's the employment arrangement, and and are some of them even you know not even really classified as official employees? Right. So, so what we do see in warehousing is an abundance of temp workers, uh, and specifically, like for example, the Linn Empire. Which has on, which includes Ontario, um, San Bernardino, Riverside. Uh, you have over a hundred thousand warehouse workers and over three hundred different temp agencies. Uh, so, so definitely there is a prevalent of temp workers where they're not guaranteed your hours. And the issue they raised earlier, where we do see major issues of wage staff. Um, so that is something that you know because of that situation we've worked on um, in uh, Los Angeles City, uh, Los Angeles County, also in Long Beach. And um, and also have collaborated statewide uh, in California in terms of addressing those issues. Uh, and one of the things I think that you know needs to be very clear that even if a workplace you have direct employees um, and not temp workers, we still say that sometimes these direct employees are treated like temp workers. And what we mean by that is that they're not guaranteed 40 hours, they're not um, guaranteed any raises or any any benefits. Um, including vacation um, or even uh, health insurance. When we're talking about just um, May Day specifically, how how hard of a decision was it for workers to make, whether individually or collectively, to actually you know go on strike or to not show up to work? Um, were were they afraid? What I, I imagine that you know tensions must be pretty high there. How safe did they feel actually standing up to their bosses? Right. So, so, so the fear uh, is always there. Um, what was the question for, for the, that they asked themselves was, was the fear going to limit them from taking that step? And so m- many decided that it, w- it wasn't going to let them, that they had to because they have everything to lose. At, at this point, if, uh, if we're not able to, to fight back against these policies. Um, so, so it was a challenging question because you are telling folks that live paycheck to paycheck to sacrifice a day's wages, but they thought it was worth it. Um, yeah. And, and has there been any, um, retaliation or, you know, uh, you know, bosses were unhappy the, the next day or something? Right now, there hasn't been any retaliation on our end, which is great. I think that is connected to, the message in our communities that really push strongly against that with employers um, and just being very vigilant that it was to occur um, to be able to jump on that. And um, you're working on warehouse workers, but you see yourselves as food chain workers, I guess, because you are um, working with a lot of shipping of, of goods that, that deals with food services in the food industry. Well, right. So, so a lot of folks uh, think, uh, you know, warehousing is just dealing with TVs and things like that, but food goes through warehousing and distribution. So, so we do deal with that. And that's why we're part of the food um, supply chain. 
So we do deal with what arrives in the port um, and gets distributed to the warehouses that get then sent out to the retailers. Um, so, so that is something cold storage that we deal with um, as well as um, other items. Right, right. And um, you're directly connected, connecting, I guess, you know, the retail end to the, to the farm work end, and, and those are both sectors that, that are definitely impacted by immigration law. Correct, right? So we're all part of the same chain, right? So you're dealing with from the farm worker to the drivers that take it to the warehouse and from there also the drivers that take it to, to the retailers, to the stores. And finally, we hear from Jose Oliva with the Food Chain Workers Alliance in Chicago, one of the main coordinating groups of the May 1st strikes. Your focus is on um, industry-based organizing and sector and you know cross-sector organizing, which is sort of a newer approach. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there's a couple of things that that I think, um, you know, gave us sort of unique leverage. One was that we were uh, sort of the connective tissue between some of the other tables that were organizing actions and events on May Day, uh, namely the folks from Movement for Black Lives uh, and then the immigration folks, right, who were who had their own tables and they were doing a lot of really great work uh, leading up to May Day and then on May Day itself, but they weren't necessarily talking to each other. And so we played the role of uh, connecting those folks to uh, the broader uh, the broader activities and actions that were taking place that day. So I think that was one uh, sort of unique element that uh, we one unique role that we played. And then the other one is um, supply chain wise uh, that there were many folks in the food system that were all talking about uh, striking almost uh, or very organically, uh, very naturally, uh, as a way of using it as the pivot point to going from this defensive stance that we've been into a more offensive fight. Um, and so using the power of uh, supply chain or, you know, the full uh, food chain uh, as a way of actually actualizing those actions on uh, on May Day, that was a really powerful thing. I thought uh, that 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 the folks that are members um, were able to bring together on May Day. Is there a growing sense of consciousness that of how the the supply chain all fits together? Because having an analysis of the way all these different pieces are, are linked um, is, is kind of crucial for understanding some of the class tensions that, that are involved throughout all these industries. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there, one, of the, uh, one of the things that emerged pretty quickly uh, when we started planning uh, the Day of Action uh, way back in February was that a lot of the workers who were uh, talking about going out on strike and, and their, you know, their organizations um, had the potential of actually paralyzing the food system. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's sort of a, a, a one-day action doesn't necessarily <laughs> lead to paralysis in the food system, but it definitely shows the potential of the power. Um, and, and especially with a product like food where, you know, you have a very short shelf life uh, and, and the product has to get to market quickly, um, there's a real uh, a realization, I think, um, that a lot of our members came to uh, because of May Day, that that is something that they can have a lot of leverage uh, 
and, and, and could potentially improve their own working conditions and their wages um, if that leverage was utilized. In terms of like what you can expect under this administration, there are all sorts of ways that um, both the food system and immigration policy will be impacted by the Trump administration. How much is that factoring into your future strategy? It's a huge uh, part of our strategy, um, and there's a little bit of a sort of schizophrenic uh, approach at it by the Trump administration, because on the one hand, they're obviously talking to uh, industry with, uh, on the one hand, sort of, uh, you know, making promises that, uh, uh, you know, they, they will be very business friendly. On the other hand, uh, talking to their base, saying that, you know, immigration policy is going to be uh, very harsh uh, and then they, they will be deporting, you know, the, the 11 million undocumented people. Uh, but those two things, when you add them up, uh, you're talking about deporting the workforce of the business owners that run the food system. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a very contradictory statement on uh, the administration's part. Um, and I think our members no, really? Understand. This administration? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, and, and, the, and our members understand that, right? They know that there's a real disconnect in what they're saying and what they're doing. And so there's a need to develop a strategy that's part of what we're actually doing right now uh, in the strategic planning sessions that we're hosting today and tomorrow and that we will be finalizing in June is um, thinking through how, right, we're going to be addressing that uh, cognitive dissonance on the part of the, the administration. Uh, how do we exploit it, right? How do we actually develop a strategy that, that takes advantage of that contradiction in a way that allows us to build on it and, and, and build power for workers as a result. That was Jose Oliva of Food Chain Workers Alliance in Chicago. And finally, I spoke with Christine Newman-Ortiz of Vosas de la Frontera in Wisconsin. Looks like Milwaukee had a pretty big, successful May Day. Can you tell us how it went? Well, we were very pleased that um, the people really responded. And uh, in uh, we had 30,000 folks who turned out not just in a mass protest, but in a a community-wide general strike known as A Day Without Latinos and Immigrants as part of the May 1st mobilizations across the country. So it it was one of the largest in the country. And we're very pleased with it given that just February 13th um, there was a very – similar mass protest general strike, um, which which is a great sacrifice on the part of people. People are taking a day off work uh, or shutting down their business, and we saw the, the same level of uh, strong response from the community um, as we did in February, and we're, we're very proud to be part of a National Day of Action. It was interesting that in some cases, Cities like New York and Los Angeles seem to have lower turnout than expected, and, and places like Milwaukee really came out. I don't know if you could, you know, speak to that at all, or if you just want to talk about the organizing that you did in, in Milwaukee that made this possible. Wisconsin in Milwaukee, we've, we've actually had for many years now um, the strong tradition of having some of the largest protests, um, certainly in the state's history, some of the largest in the in the in the country as well. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, May first, or this is, I believe, um, I think now going on our seventh 
community-wide general strike since 2006. So it's actually a tradition, the, the general strike that um, Volsas has sustained since the mass wave of 2006. So I, I think that's, you know, part of the very strong tradition or, as an organizing tool that we've been able to maintain. And in April of this year, before May 1, we actually did convene uh, many organizations and national networks here in Wisconsin to really share uh, tools and experience and uh, space for grassroots leaders, workers, and small business owners uh, to, um, you know, to really share best practices around strikes and boycotts. I I did expect the national response, uh, certainly in cities with higher densities, uh, to be stronger. But I think that the um, the time that we're in, a lot of the struggle is very, very local. And we basically have to continue to organize um, where people are at. And we saw a lot of really great uh, local and state work, which was in part uh, definitely the intent of organizers across the country, was to make sure to use this National Day of Action to really leverage the work that's happening at the local and, and state level. In the case of Wisconsin, our focus has really been uh, to put pressure on uh, Sheriff Clark from Milwaukee County right. to expose his corruption, his record of abuse as an example of why this is exactly mm -hmm. uh, the kind of uh, local law enforcement that uh, wants 287G, which is part of Trump's executive orders and, and using local law enforcement and local government as a tool for um, racist, unconstitutional mass deportation uh, machinery and really using that. And, and this, what was different from this event than from February was that we were able to really give voice to a much broader platform of people that are also um, fighting uh, Sheriff Clark and, you know, wanting to see him immediately be removed from office and face criminal charges for deaths um, and human rights abuses in his jail. And so it's a, it's a bigger campaign. And we felt it was very, we're very proud of the, the turnout because uh, he is also being considered for a position in the Trump administration. We also feel it's important that, that people know what his record is. Yeah, and this was, um, he was, is at the center of a particularly horrifying case that just happened. I don't, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there's been um, a lot of progress done on the investigation and report of uh, a man, Terrell Thomas, who was uh, mentally ill. He was put in the county jail, and it's important for people to remember when you're in the county jail, um, you're basically awaiting trial and so forth. Um, so he, you know, they knew he was, um, uh, that he uh, was mentally ill, and um, and he had flooded the cell by turning on the water against policy. Um, the water was shut off. It wasn't documented, uh, and, um, and he was left to... Um, die of dehydration for because he was denied water for seven days mm -hmm. and it's only through like some of the interviews that were initiated by the local newspaper journal sentinel of the staff that it kind of came out that um you know people the in the um surrounding cells were saying that you know they were saying he needs water he needs water and um and the attitude of the there's like missing video equipment 
and the whole attitude of the sheriff has been um really to uh, uh to disregard um to really to, to disregard the life of this man or how he died and it's really that culture that's been that starts at the top um that's really allowed for these kinds of abuses to happen so our concern um is that it's only the lower level folks that are being charged when mm-hmm. it's very clear that the entire culture is um and the whole system needs to be um starts with the very leadership at the top and that Clark needs to be held accountable for this you know, the torture and death of this man. So moving forward, I mean you mentioned that this is was um you know a bigger, broader coalition that came together for this May Day. Um what are your next steps moving forward? What are you um looking at for the next few months? One thing is is that we definitely want to continue to build out the uh um a broader coalition. Uh Milwaukee is um very much uh like uh, some of the the Rust Belt uh area that that you know has seen a dramatic loss of industrial jobs and family supporting union jobs and in the wake just a you know just more the rise of low wage jobs and high unemployment and really feel that it's that it's very very important one of the highest incarceration rates of african american men in the country and and really feel it's important that this is this fight against sheriff clark provides us an opportunity to really link the immigrant rights movement with the criminal justice movement to really um call for the kinds of reforms that we want to see in the county jail so um if we can force the hand of the governor to or or the people doing the investigations of a whole series of human rights abuses uh, that are uh, pending then um you know there would be a temporary appointment till the 2018 elections but we feel that it's important to uh first say what are the what are the kinds of reforms that that we'd like to see um in both immigration and the criminal justice system and so i think that's a, a very uh good opportunity for us uh, in terms of linking forces um, with a much broader community. And then secondly, uh, we want to continue to organize at the state level. Um, There is an anti-sanctuary bill that has been reintroduced, and it's essentially a state version of Trump's um, anti-sanctuary policies where they want to cut funding and punish any local government or law entity that doesn't, that limits collaboration or information with immigration. So this is a a state version and, and, um, and that has been reintroduced last year in February. We defeated that bill from becoming law through another massive day without Latinos and immigrants, um, in that case at the state capitol and a statewide general strike. And um but it has been reintroduced and we also want to fight not just defensively but also uh, around the kinds of things that we want and we, we want welcoming communities for immigrants and refugees. So continuing to do the local work and at the state level really fight hard for recovering driver's licenses for immigrants, which is something that, that we lost under the federal real ID. And um to do that we've been planning a um pilgrimage for justice that um, would be marching from Milwaukee to Madison to have uh, mass presence, mass lobby day to really highlight that work. I think a lot of the work has to be local, has to be in district, but there are moments like May 1 or other moments at the state level when we um, have to really come out in in strong numbers. And and so we definitely um, 
want to do that. And I would say just in general, continuing to show up for each other on May 1st. We had a lot of support from environmentalists, um, Planned Parenthood, you know, this across the country. And um, and uh, a lot of civil rights are under attack, um, economic rights for working people and the poor are under attack. And so I think continuing to mm-hmm. be conscious that the immigrant rights movement and the organizations um, need to need to be a presence um, of, and show show that unity um, in different areas. That was Christine Newman Ortiz of Voces de la Frontera in Wisconsin. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And with that, we turn from our May Day coverage to everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. In the wake of May Day and the vote in the House to take away health insurance for millions of people, it's a particularly good time to look abroad for inspiration. Today I'm looking at Ella Mahoney's piece in Jacobin on the general strike in that country, why Brazil is striking on Friday. After Workers' Party President Dilma Rousseff was impeached a year ago, the right has consolidated its hold over the country and pushed for the same kind of austerity reforms that, well, belabored listeners are used to hearing about. But a dramatic pension reform bill may have been a step too far for Brazilians. Mahoney writes, The bill is part of a comprehensive attack on workers' rights that promises to wreck young workers' prospects for decades to come. In an effort to bring Brazil's labor standards in line with the priorities of multinational corporations, Tamer, who is the current president, is also championing a bill that would allow companies to outsource any job, extend the maximum duration of temporary work contracts from three months to nine months, and end the eight-hour workday. If these reforms pass, young Brazilians would face a grim future of more precarious work, fewer benefits, longer hours, and dwindling hopes for retirement. Unsurprisingly, both the pension reform and Tamara himself are massively unpopular, and after last week's explosive corruption allegations targeting nearly a third of his cabinet and many of his congressional allies, one wonders whether the interim president will have the political capital to pull it off. Even before the corruption charges, Tamara's approval rating was hovering at just 10%, the same place Rousseff stood on the eve of her impeachment. Of course, the pension reform is only part of the story, and Mahoney lays out a complex picture of political tensions on Brazil's left, the rise of a new left party, and the ever-present specter of corruption. Mahoney's piece was written before the strike, which came off on Friday the 28th. Reports came of cities shut down, transit halted, burning tires and barricades in the street, buses set afire, and a march on Tamara's Sao Paulo residence. The strike hit all 26 states and saw some 35 million workers out. Auto production at General Motors, Ford, Toyota, and elsewhere was halted. Most workers at the state-run oil company Petrobras also went on strike. I obviously am talking about this strike because it's important news, but in this week, when we're talking about general strikes in the U.S. and also talking about deeply unpopular government policies being forced through by a party that has consolidated its power despite its platform polling somewhere on a par with cockroaches and Nickelback, it's worth looking at other countries to understand what these fights look like elsewhere. We tend to think that it can't happen here. We tend to be wrong. And my pick for this week was... Michael Grable of ProPublica, uh, his piece jointly published with The New Yorker, called 
exploitation and abuse at the chicken plant. It profiles one particularly bad employer called Case Farms, which is actually pretty emblematic of conditions throughout the industry. Um, he draws some pretty harrowing portraits of the suffering that these workers experience day to day in the job. And he takes a plunge into the dregs of the food industry to show how a conspiracy of corporate impunity, government deregulation, and oppressive immigration policies colludes to lead to mass human rights violations. So those hearty chicken dinners you enjoy from the frozen food section are paid for in the broken bones and bloody lacerations that workers suffer daily on the production line. Poultry carcasses zip by them by the thousands at ludicrous speeds, and they are under constant bone-crushing pressure to produce more nonstop to the extent that some at this plant were forced to wear diapers while working to avoid having to use the bathroom. At the plant Grable profiles, workers tell him that they're paid about $2.25 for every thousand chickens they process. And in one night, nine chicken catchers can bring in about 75,000 chicken carcasses. And if you're wondering why they don't just quit, consider who they are and the conditions that their communities live in. These aren't typical at-will employees. They're in an isolated rural community. Many are refugees from Central America, and they are both impoverished and living under enormously oppressive conditions, especially under this administration. Uh, which is particularly unfriendly, as you might have caught on by now, to undocumented immigrants and immigrants of all sorts. And if they try to challenge their bosses, their employer knows that they can always conveniently threaten to report them to federal authorities for daring to demand their rights. Although injury rates are high throughout the poultry and livestock processing industries, Case Farms was an especially notorious case, with stunning 74 safety and health violations reported since 2010. It's more than quadruple the rate of the second most dangerous company in the listings of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And why are their bosses able to get away with it? Largely because the government cares a lot more about enforcing repressive immigration laws than it does about holding corporations accountable for the health and safety of their workers. Workers have, over the years, though, managed to bravely complain to authorities about labor violations. There have even been strikes at the plant over the years in protest of the systematic safety violations and abuses they've suffered. But corporations, even when the law finds them to be in the wrong, can often easily skirt financial or legal liability. And while Obama was known as deporter-in-chief, having overseen millions of deportations during his two terms, Trump has taken the vilification of Latinos to new lows. According to Grable, the safety conditions got so bad at Case Farms, OSHA agents recently, quote, determined that the company's line speeds and workflow were so hazardous to workers' hands and arms that it should, quote, investigate and change immediately nearly all the positions on the line. But of course, that would cut into their production rates. And, quote, as the company fights the fines, it keeps finding new ways to keep labor costs down. For a time, after the Guatemalan workers began to organize, Case Farms recruited Burmese refugees. Then it turned to ethnic Nepalis, expelled from Bhutan, who today make up nearly 35% of the company's employees in Ohio. It's an industry that targets the most vulnerable group of workers and brings them in, Debbie Berkowitz says. She's OSHA's former senior policy advisor. And when one group gets too powerful and stands up for their rights, they figure out who's even more vulnerable and move them in. 
And this is how the business works. Exhausting layer upon layer of workers' bodies, legions of laborers who are churned through the factories with as much speed and brutal efficiency as the birds themselves. It all goes into that cheap, shrink-wrapped, neatly filleted raw chicken that you took home for dinner last night. It's the price we all pay for a food system where the most powerful profiteers are never held to account. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Join us in another two weeks. Happy May Day, all. If you have story ideas, questions, observations about what you've been seeing since May Day in your community, uh, let us know at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.